Morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Pansy Chapel. I don't know how your time of worship was uh, in the last half hour, but I want you to know this. I, uh, our time of worship here this morning with the, with the less than 10 people that we have in the building here right now was awesome. And I think, I feel like the Lord gave me some pictures of, of uh, what is going on in this region right now. And I just, as, as odd as it might seem to, to preach at a lot of empty chairs, I'm not preaching to empty chairs. What I just, what springs up in me, and I, I, don't know, and I want you to know, if you're a regular attender at Pansy Chapel, you are likely just prayed for in the last half hour, again, very specifically. And I also want to know that if rocks are going to cry out and praise Jesus' name, these chairs are going to do the same thing. And so we are at risk of letting the chairs outdo us. And so I just would ask you and encourage you in your living rooms and in your, wherever you're watching this, in your office or whatever it is, I, I would encourage you to not let these empty chairs outdo you in worship. And so as we just declare uh, the goodness of the Lord this morning, uh, you could even throw out an amen or, or uh, something like that, whatever you're comfortable with in your home, and we're going to praise the Lord together. Last week, we were thankful, we were thank, thanking the Lord last week about local politicians who asked us to pray. And I just love that. Today, we are, uh, there's more people asking us to pray, and the Global Evangelical Church is, has set today, March 29, aside as a global day of prayer and fasting. And so, we're already praying, but know that we are praying with Christians around the world specifically. And if you haven't already considered fasting, and I know that some of you are, uh, ask the Lord what that looks like in your life and if you should join his church in that. And speaking of prayer, we are going to be doing something brand new as Pansy Chapel. We are going to be live streaming our prayer service on Wednesday at 7 p.m. And so we're live streaming that exactly in the same format. So if you're watching this, it'll be exactly the same for our Wednesday live stream for our prayer service. And that's going to be at 7 o'clock in the evening. And so join us for that. And if you think about it, that is something brand new for us. And so maybe even just pray for us in that. As I was praying for the church, now I was during our praise and worship time, and I, I closed my eyes and I can see the church. And when I, when I, I'm not the building. When I can see the church, I mean the people. And I can see the people, and I was imagining where people often tend to sit. And, uh, and, I, and I was praying for them by name. I think I got just about everybody. And, and there's a few people that I want to sh uh, put a shout out to very specifically, some very special people in our church that I really miss. I really miss Brian. Brian, you make me smile every time I come to church. Just by seeing you in church, it puts a smile on my face. Shane, I miss the way that you interact with me and answer the questions during the sermon. Sometimes it's even happened that you've, you answered something before I even put out the question, and I wonder either the Holy Spirit is somehow tracking with your mind. It's amazing. And Cindy, it is a privilege for me to stand beside you on Sunday mornings and hear you sing, because you sing with zero inhibitions, and you just worship the Lord with all that you have. And 
and the Lord has spoken so powerfully through, through you, Cindy. It is just a privilege to have you in our church, and I miss you. And I miss Paul. Paul, you encourage me every time I come to church because you're always happy to see me, and you have a big smile and a warm handshake, and you always have an encouraging word to say to me. And Melvin, I love your handshakes. You always shake my hand and flex your muscles, and it makes me smile. I love it. I miss you, church. I'm looking forward to when we're back here all together on a Sunday morning. Oh, I miss all kinds of people. I prayed, prayed for many people by name. People like uh, Jaden, who make me smile every time you give me a high five, and Landon, miss your pictures. Lord, I just, uh, Lord, could you just bless this church? Holy Spirit, could you come and rest on each home that is worshiping you this morning? Speak to them. Open up their ears, Sovereign Lord, that their ears would not be rebellious and that their ears would not draw back, but that they would engage with you and they would want to hear what you are saying to them. Come, Lord, and speak to us this morning. Amen. So we're working on a series of messages this year called The Vision, The the Vision, not Division, and it's it's good. What's the vision of Pansy Chapel? You guys can say it with me because it's in your bulletin that you got online yesterday. It's on the screen in the top corner, I don't know, or maybe it's the full screen, whatever. Anyways, here's the vision. You should know this by heart, but our vision in Pansy Chapel is... To know God and to make Him known from pansy and beyond. And if somebody was to ask you, how are you going to do that? Very simply, we're going to be nurturing intentional relationships with the triune God and each other, focusing on the truth, capital T, living out His love. And so we've already covered a number of messages in this series. Here's a little picture of where we're going and and where we've kind of come from in this particular series. We've already talked about vision. We've already talked about mission. We've talked about the first two core practices, which refer to things that we do, ways that we behave in the church. And last week, we jumped over to core value number five, and we covered, and core values refers to way, refer to ways that you think, or that way that we desire to think in Pansy Chapel. And we covered core value number five last week. If you missed any of those, you can go onto the Pansy Chapel website and you can can listen to those. Today, we're going to take one more step backwards. Our whole world is upside down anyway, so we're just going to keep on going backwards and we're going to cover core value number four. And core value number four is really simple. Again, this is a way that we think. And it would encourage me, if you guys said this out loud with me, if you can read it on your screen. It's really simple. Core value number four, way of thinking, is this. Be the neighbor. Can you guys say that with me one more time? Be the neighbor. Not too complicated. I want to start by telling you guys a story about the Good Samaritan. You guys know the story well, but in case you don't know who the Samaritans are, that's an important little detail in the story. 
And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Samaritans first. Samaria is that region in what we know as Israel today, approximately in the middle of Israel, is the region or was the region of Samaria. And about 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth, the Israelite people were taken captive by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, a few Israelite people were left in the city, and the Assyrian king then took a whole bunch of Assyrian people and sent them back to that city. And what happened was that the people started marrying each other, and you had people that were no longer, they were no longer 100% Jews, they were like 50% Jews. And so the, the, the plan of that king was for them to lose their identity, that they would no longer be fully Jewish people. And so they end up with a mix of religions. They started worshiping not only Yahweh, but Yahweh and other religions. And that was really gross. We know that that's called idolatry. And the people were practicing that. When Ezra and Nehemiah came back a few years later to rebuild the temple, it was those Samaritans like Sanballat who were opposing the building of the temple. And so to the Jews, the Samaritans were looked at as people who were despised. They were looked at as traitors. They were looked at as people who were half-breeds and people who were considered unclean. And so for a Jewish person to even interact with them would make the Jewish person unclean. And so there was this hatred that developed there, this animosity developed. So much so that in the New Testament, years later when Jesus comes, I'll give you a little illustration of this in John chapter 4. In John 4 verse 9, remember when Jesus comes to the well, he meets a Samaritan woman there. And she is so surprised seeing that Jesus is Jewish and she's Samaritan that he would spend any time in her presence kind of blew her mind. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The, the, the Jews would go well out of their way to avoid that, even that region of Samaria. If they were traveling, and the, the, the obvious choice of travel would be to go through Samaria, they would take great pains to go around it so that they wouldn't become unclean. They could never share utensils or drinking uh, device uh, pots or pitchers or whatever because that would make them unclean and there's this one time there's this one time in John chapter 8 this is interesting to me and it kind of makes me laugh and I'm going to paraphrase it for you okay you can read it for yourself in John 8 48 if you're if you're interested but Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people and he calls them he says you guys are liars you guys are sons of your father, the devil. Woo! <laughs> and I think they're offended. And, and the one Jewish guy, he turns to Jesus, and then I think he's firing back at Jesus, trying to... He, feel, he feels offended, and he fires back at Jesus. And he says, oh, yeah, well, well, well you're demon-possessed and, and a Samaritan. And it's interesting to me that in response to that, Jesus says... He, he, he rebuttals, he rebukes the guy and gives a rebuttal for the, for the false accusation that he's demon-possessed. But nowhere is it ever recorded that Jesus defended himself against the false accusation that he was Samaritan. 
To the Jews, to many of the Jews, it was a huge insult to be called a Samaritan. But Jesus didn't seem to care. I love Jesus. Here's the story. Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I just want to think about that for a second. When you see that question on your screen, if somebody would ask you that question today, how would you answer that question? Somebody comes up to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer? If somebody asked me that question, my mind thinks of very simple things, and I would probably go to ABC, because that's pretty simple. It's about as simple as it gets. And if you go through that acronym ABC, it just kind of in a really simple way tells you how to how you, it answers this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and that he rose again and that God raised him to eternal life. And then C, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you want him to be the Lord of your life. Really simple. A, B, C. And so that's probably what I would say. And I would say that based on Scripture. There's all kinds of scriptures like Romans 10, 9, 10, 13 that I could tell you that would indicate that that's actually a correct answer. But interesting is this. When this expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't answer A, B, and C. But what Jesus is going to do, and that might confuse people and they think, well, hold on a second. Is it two different things? Let me just tell you what Jesus is about to do before we read it. Jesus is very, very good at asking, exposing questions. He is going to respond to this expert in the law. Instead of giving him a sermon, instead of hitting him in the face with it, he's going to ask an exposing question. And that question will resonate in this man, and this man's sin will become exposed. And if he is going to admit that God defines sin, and if God defines sin, I better get that sin off the throne of my life because if I admit that God is God and that I'm a sinner and I want Jesus to sit on that throne, I've got to repent and confess. And Jesus will effectively bring him to exactly the same place, but he's going to do it in a different way. When Jesus asks those exposing questions, he's pointing out an issue in that... He's going he's to point out an issue in this man's life that's going to bring that man, if he's willing, to be in a place of full surrender to Jesus. Okay? So I'm going to read this, I'm going to read this sentence one more time and then we're, going to skip, like, then we're going to keep on going to the next verse. On one occasion, an expert in the law, he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just asks this exposing question. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And then the man answered. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Guys, 
if you're new to Pansy Chapel, you have to know this, that when there's yellow words on the screen, you say them out loud with me, okay? So Jesus looks to him and says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Here's what I think is so cool. If this guy, this expert in the law, if he would have walked away in that moment, he could go down in history as someone who answered Jesus' question correctly. But Jesus doesn't ask simple questions. He is asking an exposing question. And you might think, well, how is that question exposing anything? This fellow, the expert in the law, had the right words to say. He just spoke exactly the right words. And I think as he spoke those words, Jesus was just looking at him and waiting for those words to run through his head as he said them. And as he said them, I think Jesus just let them hang there a little bit. And evidently there was something behind the correctly worded answer. Something was bothering that man. Maybe a sense of guilt. Somehow he knew that his behavior was not quite lined up with his correctly worded answer. And he wanted to justify his actions. And so, in verse 29, the next verse, but he wanted to justify himself. Oh, he was doing so good. Now here he goes, but he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want you to understand this. What is, what is this expert in the law asking? He now wants a definition of who is my neighbor? Why would that man ask that question? He's obviously hoping to excuse some kind of his behavior because he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to justify his actions. He knew the right words to say. Now he's just trying to justify how he's been behaving. He's hoping that Jesus is going to say something along the lines of, well, I see that you're an expert in the law, and you hang out with other people who are experts in the law, so those other experts in the law, they're your neighbors, why don't you just love them? Which would make this man feel great. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that as soon as you define who your neighbor is, what have you automatically defined? You have them automatically defined who your non-neighbors are. And that's a problem. This man's answer was theologically correct. But in practice, he was in his mind thinking things like, well, you're not my neighbor, so I don't have to help you. You're not my neighbor, so I don't have to help you. His practice was so wrong, and I think that in Jesus' presence, he started to feel uncomfortable and convicted. And he is hoping that Jesus would just justify my actions and take away that uncomfortableness. And I, and I want to point out this. When, when this man asks that question, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus doesn't stoop down to answer his question. Because the question's actually wrong. Jesus just speaks the truth. And in this situation, he tells him a story. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now a priest is somebody that that expert in the law would respect. A priest would also would not want to contaminate himself by going to go touch somebody who's dirty or bloody or clothes half ripped off. Priests wouldn't do that. So too, in verse 32, so too, a Levite, Levite, this guy's not a priest, but he's one of, them, one of the ones who would be helping the priest in the temple. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, but a who? But a Samaritan. But a guy who is considered unclean, despised by all the Jews, or many of the Jews. He's considered a half-breed and a traitor. That guy, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I'm going to reread that last sentence because I think that you might not have caught on what just happened. Jesus just told this expert in the law a little story. And then at the end of the story, he asked, Jesus now asks the question. And he asks the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Do you see what's happening here? This expert in the law, let me point this out. There's four people in the story. There's the victim, and the victim has fallen at the hands of the robbers. This is really simple, but I'm going to just represent the victim is this, my finger here. This is the victim. And then you have three other people. You have the priest, you have the Levite, and you have the Samaritan. The expert in the law, as he is hearing the story about these four people... He is looking at this victim, and he is thinking, because what was the question that he asked? He asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And so the expert in the law is looking, his eyes are fixed on the the victim, and he is looking at the victim, and, and he's thinking, is that victim my neighbor? Okay? But then Jesus, at the end of his story, changes the question. And Jesus isn't looking at the victim. Jesus says, 
look over here at these three guys. And you, ask, you tell me this, which one of those three guys is behaving like a neighbor? Come on, church, do you see what the difference is? He has taken that question, it's not, he's taken a question of who is my neighbor, and he is now asking a question of how do you be a neighbor? Because that's the relevant question. The question isn't who is your neighbor, it's how do you be a neighbor? Because theology is not important to Jesus in this story. He is trying to, that guy had correct theology, but his behavior was wrong. He changed the question, and theology is important. Don't send me an email on that. I know theology is important. But Jesus is more concerned about this man's behavior, and he is not fooled by his correctly worded theology that somehow would disguise poor behavior. Verse 37, then the expert in the law replied, and I think, I think there was probably a pause here. I think the expert in the law, uh, realizing he has been completely exposed, his heart has been seen now by God, um, probably was a little short on words. And he just replies and says, um, which one of these guys was a acting like a neighbor, uh, was the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say Samaritan. He just said, it was the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, now catch this, church. Jesus told him, he didn't, what, do you, what did Jesus not say here? Jesus didn't say, you've answered correctly. Because that would allow this man to think, wow, my theology is still 100%. No, Jesus said, go and do likewise. He's telling him, your behavior should be like that. You guys with me? Now, now think about this. When Jesus says, he's just told him about how to be a neighbor. And he says, go and do likewise. Essentially, he's saying, say it with me, three words. Be the neighbor. You guys with me? Jesus is essentially telling this expert in the law, be the neighbor. That's what we want to do in Pansy Chapel. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this. I'm excited about this for a number of reasons. I, this is convicting to me. It always is. But I'm excited about this at the same time because I know that in Pansy Chapel, it has actually been our DNA for many, many years to be the neighbor. And that's already inside our church as the congregation. Man, if I could close my eyes and imagine where people are sitting, I can see many people who... Just be the neighbor. They do that. They don't necessarily wait. If they see somebody with a need, they don't wait for someone else to go take care of it. They just take care of it. They don't wait for somebody to come up with a program to feed that person. They just go feed that person. Well, I see those kinds of things happening in our church. It's so good. One of the elders, I overheard him say within the last week, he said, you know what's interesting about Pansy Chapel? By the time I hear about a need in the church, someone has already taken care of it. It's already in our DNA. That's worth praising the Lord about. 
But we need to be intentional about it. And we can ask the Lord, Lord, maybe I still have places where I can do more, or maybe I have places where I need to improve. And we want to be a church that's intentional about this. So what does that look like today? What does it look like to be the neighbor? We already know that it's not, figuring, it's not about figuring out who is and isn't your neighbor. That's not the question. It's about always having switched on the attitude and behavior of being the neighbor. So, when you're at home, self-isolating, and someone in your home is lonely or bored, you could be the neighbor and cheer them up even if they're only your neighbor five feet down the hallway. Or when you go to the store and pick up groceries, you could just have this switched on in your mind, thinking, who can I be the neighbor to? Maybe, maybe the Lord will bring someone to your mind that you could phone, park your car on the side of the road, then phone, and phone them and say, can I pick up groceries for you? Just wondering if she came to my mind, just curious if you need anything. Maybe you could be the neighbor for somebody, or maybe as you're driving, you'll see somebody, and it'll trigger how you ought to pray, or maybe you ought to minister to them along the way somehow. Somebody with a flat tire or whatever. Maybe as you drive through town, the Lord will show you who you can be a neighbor to. Are you going to just drive your car around to the other side of the street, like the priest and the Levite? Or are you going to be the neighbor? Maybe when you get to the store, you're going to realize you have plenty of opportunity to be the neighbor. Lord, just show me who I should be the neighbor to. You might be able to be the neighbor by when you pass six feet away from somebody and you're both hugging, the, the, your shoulders are brushing against the groceries on the, on the aisle because you're trying to, trying to pass by. As you're passing by, you could say a friendly and expectant Hello. That would be nice. Maybe that person will recognize, hey, this person is actually not, they're not even afraid. They're not, they're not even anxious. In fact, it seemed like they might even entertain a conversation with me. Because we could have a conversation six feet apart and still abide by social distancing rules. You can be a neighbor from that distance. And maybe it's just somebody who's looking for the baking soda. And you could tell them where it is. Because, guys, if I'm in the store and I'm looking for baking soda, I could use a neighbor to tell me where the baking soda is. Okay? Maybe it's offering to pray for somebody. You could just ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, could you just show me if there's somebody here who just would love me to pray with them? You would be amazed. People put on a pretty good front. But there are people in our world today that are anxious and would love it if somebody just said, hey, could we pray together? You could just tell them. It can just be in whatever real words, you're, whatever real words come to you. Just like, I don't know if you know Jesus or not, but um, he gives a lot of peace. And if you'd like that kind of a peace, would, are you interested in, can I pray for you? Is there something that I can, is there something heavy on your heart that I could pray for? I, I like praying to Jesus. It could be that simple. What's the worst that's going to happen? They will say, no, I prefer being fearful and anxious and afraid and walk away. Maybe it's paying for someone's groceries when you get to the till. You know how much that's going to cost you? 
about two denarii. Because two denarii was about two days' wages. Maybe that's how God wants you to be the neighbor. These are just a couple ideas to get your brain thinking about how to be the neighbor. Ask the Lord for more ideas because He's pretty creative. Amen? <laughs> Guys, the Lord is pretty creative. Amen? Amen. Here's, play along with me a little bit here, okay? Close your eyes. I want you to imagine something. Close your eyes and just imagine this. Imagine that you're in Steinbach and you're shopping at Superstore. So if you're not a Superstore shopper, just help me out here. You're shopping at Superstore for some reason this day. And as you walk in towards Superstore, you notice somebody hanging out by the carts there that haven't been disinfected. And you notice somebody hanging out by the carts. And they look a little bit hunched over and almost like they're a little shivery or something. Either they're cold or uncomfortable or maybe they're just not feeling well. And you know the Lord puts them on your heart and you know I need to go and talk to that person. And you go and you start approaching that person. And I want you to have your, with your eyes closed, think about this. What does that person look like? What kind of clothes is that person wearing? What does their hair look like? What does their face look like? What does their, what do their teeth look like? What do they smell like? Now I want to ask you this question. Even think about what color is their skin. If you were to change their nationality or the color of their skin or the clothes that they were wearing, does it change your desire and your willingness to be the neighbor? You can open up your eyes again if you want. I want to point this out. It's tough to be completely innocent of not judging somebody by their outward appearance. It even happened to the great, one of the great prophets, Samuel. He looked at man's outward appearance, but God told him, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so it's tough for us to not judge people based on their outside appearance. But if you are less likely to be the neighbor to someone because of their skin color, because of their nationality, because of how they dress or what they smell like or where they come from or how they live, you are already committing a sin. In fact, you are breaking the very law that you're trying to keep by being a good neighbor. Look at what it says in James. James chapter 2. Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so good when you be the neighbor. Verse 9. But. <laughs> Excuse me, guys. Oh, there we go. Sorry, guys. 
it's so good to obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 9, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking that same law. Who? What if the person that you need to help or the Lord convicts you of, you know that they don't deserve your help? Like seriously, they abuse helpers. Maybe you've heard bad stories about them. Maybe you have, maybe you know that person or you know their type and you have no respect for them. Jesus didn't tell you to be the judge of who deserves your love. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Because the reason that we love people is not because they deserve it. It is simply because Jesus loved us first. John, 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. That's why we love. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Whoa! Listen, guys. If you don't love your brother or sister whom you've seen, you cannot love God. I, for one, want to be someone who when I fall on my knees before Jesus one day, I want to be known as someone who loved and loves God. And you cannot love God unless you love your brother and sister. And I'll just, I'll just say this. If, you're, if you love your brother and sisters so much, and it could be your, your actual siblings, but this also refers to your neighbors, other human beings, okay? If you feel convicted right now, press pause and spend some time pouring your heart out to the Lord and come on your knees before Him voluntarily. Remember this. When you be the neighbor to someone, when you're going to feed the hungry or give clothes to the person who needs clothes, or when you're going to practice hospitality to strangers, or if you're going to go visit the sick or visit those in prison, you know what Jesus says about being the neighbor like that? He said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In other words, when you be the neighbor to someone, you are being the neighbor to Jesus. And he said in that same, and I'm talking about the sheep and the goats parable in Matthew 25. And when you neglect to be the neighbor to someone, you neglect being the neighbor to Jesus. People will know that you are a follower of Jesus, not by what you say you believe. People will know that you are a follower of Jesus not by what you say you believe, but by the love that you show for other people. 
In Pansy Chapel, we want to be the neighbor to our families, to our friends. We want to be the neighbor right in the church, within the people that you can imagine sitting here on a Sunday morning. We want to be the neighbor inside the church. And we want to be the neighbor outside the church. Because being, understanding how this works with being the neighbor is not about defining who the neighbor is. It's about defining the behavior that should be in us. And I'll tell you this, with all the anxious and fearful people in the world who are legitimately scared and have reason to be afraid, the opportunity to be a, an incredible witness for Jesus just by being the neighbor is an opportunity that is greater than ever before. Let me show you that with a verse in 1 Peter. Read the yellow words with me, okay, guys? 1 Peter 2, verse 12 says this, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when He judges the world. I am so thankful and in Pansy Chapel, we have so many people who are already being the neighbor. I love it. It's already in our DNA. And I'm just asking, Lord, join with me in prayer. Jesus, could you forgive me when, when there are people whom at first glance I hesitate to be their neighbor? Forgive me, Jesus. Jesus, I pray that we as a people would be passionate about being the neighbor. Wake us up out of our slumber that we would be so passionate about loving others and being the neighbor that it would begin to influence our unbelieving neighbors and it would influence them so much that one day when we get to be in your presence together, they would be there too. Lord, let that be what happens in Pansy Chapel. We pray this in your most holy and precious name, Jesus. And all the people who agreed said, Amen.